1: This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence This podcast is intended for a mature audience Listener caution is advised In February 1974, a a two-and-a-half-year-old went missing For four hours, dozens of police officers and relatives of the toddler searched the area. His older brother had been looking after him while they were out playing, but came home not knowing where his sibling was. The youngster was eventually found peacefully asleep in the long grass a short distance from his home. It was an incredible relief for his worried family. Unfortunately, this happy ending wouldn't be granted in the case of another boy who went missing around 40 miles away a day earlier. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 28 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. The night was drawing in on Monday, February 11th, 1974, but Kathy Spickett's 10-year-old son, Paul, had still not arrived home from school. Paul attended Mandale Junior High School in Thornaby-on-Tees, North Yorkshire, just over a mile and a half from his home on Vulcan Way. Most afternoons, Paul would board the bus, taking him through the town centre before bringing him closer to home. Occasionally, he would buy a ticket a few stops early to save some change to spend on sweets. He would then walk less than a mile home, but it never took him long. Cathy Spickett was beginning to worry. Paul should have been home hours ago she expressed concern to her partner Brian and her son's father Alan, who lived in newcastle upon Tyne. Paul's loved ones searched the surrounding areas late into the night, but there was no sign of the little boy. Paul's best friend, whom he usually came home from school with, had been sick that day, so trying to work out who Paul had last been with was challenging. Officers from what was then the Teesside Constabulary were alerted and began looking for Paul along the route from Mandale Junior High School to Vulcan Way in Thornaby. The growing town on the banks of the River Tees is just a few miles south of Stockton-on-Tees and Middlesbrough. Both Paul's mother and her partner Brian worked on the local buses. Which was advantageous because Brian was able to check along his route. Unfortunately, he saw no sign of the young boy while on duty. Paul Spickett had been missing for over 36 hours by the time the sun rose over the A177 between Stockton on Tees and Durham. It was shortly after 7.30am on Wednesday, February 13th, when the crisp morning temperature had reached minus one and the grass was frosted with beads of icy dew. A driver from Sparks Bakery in Stockton was on his morning route delivering bread when he noticed something on the grassy verge alongside the road. He pulled over and approached what looked like some brown sacks in a ditch next to open fields. The driver parked his van, got out and walked onto the grass. A few steps later, he realised he had found the body of a child. A supermarket carrier bag concealed the boy's face and brown sacks covered his body. There cellar tape stuck to patches of torn plastic on the carrier bag. The driver removed the bag from the child's head. There were numerous deep wounds to the boy's face. In shock, the driver made no attempts to move the child's body and rushed to the nearest of two farmhouses to raise the alarm. The land Leighton House Farm was owned by Fred Hanley. Hanley was awoken by a rapid knocking on his front door. The commotion startled another farmer who lived in the neighbouring property and he walked over to the driver curious to know what was going on. The neighbour later told reporters that he had heard it was a young boy from Thornaby and the police informed his parents to hurry to the scene. The farmer said, I have been told that there were gunshot wounds on the body. Scenes of crime officers from Stockton and Teeside cordoned off the area and shut down the northbound lane of the A-177 so they could look through the hedges for evidence. Detective Chief Superintendent Jack Collinson, head of Durham Criminal Investigation Department, was at the scene. He said, All I know is that a body has been found, and at the moment foul play is suspected. The search continued for four hours as the young boy's body was removed for a post-mortem examination. A joint incident room was established in Stockton as a full-scale murder inquiry was opened, and the victim was positively identified as 10-year-old Paul Spickett. Deputy Head of Teesside Criminal Investigation Department, Detective Superintendent Norman Hudson, was working on the case alongside other detectives from neighbouring forces. Describing the crime as a brutal murder with no apparent motive, the officer said, We believe he was killed somewhere else and left on the roadside late last night or early today. There was no attempt to hide the body. Spicket's body was found fully clothed There were no signs that he had been sexually assaulted The post-mortem showed that he had sustained multiple blunt force trauma injuries to his head and face The pathologist concluded that he had died from a hemorrhage either late on the day he went missing or in the early hours of the following day His body had been dumped on the roadside just hours before it was discovered, meaning it had been kept elsewhere for almost a full day. A mobile headquarters was set up near Paul Spickett's home, ten miles from the scene. Over 80 officers were assigned to the case. Investigators were eager to establish Paul's movements after he left school at 3.30pm on Monday, February 11th. The headmaster at Mandale Junior High School appealed to Paul's classmates to tell detectives absolutely anything they knew about Paul or what he did after school on the day he went missing. The detectives learned that Paul went to a sweet shop in the town centre after getting a bus leaving him about a mile from home. According to a witness, Paul had played with a friend briefly before heading off with some older boys from another school. The boys were believed to have been aged between 13 and 14, and the police asked them to come forward. Detective Superintendent Hudson said, at that time he seemed perfectly happy and contented on his regular way home. The group was seen hanging around near an industrial estate only a few hundred yards from the property where Paul lived. A team of 60 uniformed officers and police dogs were sent to scour the area. The officers looked through piles of old tires and emptied old oil drums. They were looking for a small kit Paul had been given that day as part of a school project. It contained a toothbrush, a tube of toothpaste and tablets. The police believe Paul had the kit on him at the time of his disappearance, but it was not found with his body. It was theorised that sometime after 4pm Paul was abducted and killed, and then his body was kept for 24 hours before being disposed of on the A-177. Parents in Thornaby were terrified that someone was targeting young children. Each morning scores of worried mothers would escort their children to school and then wait by the school gates to collect them after the school day had ended. Detective Chief Superintendent Jack Collinson commented on the palpable fear in the community and said, As long as a murderer is not found, we don't know what he will do. As with any murder, those closest to the victim were brought in for questioning. Paul Spickett's parents were understandably distraught, and 45-year-old Kathy had to be sedated. Both his mother and father had a solid alibi during the time Paul disappeared, so police moved on to question Kathy's partner, Brian Adams. Kathy and Brian had met on a bus almost a year prior in July 1973. He was a bus driver and she was a bus conductor. It was clear to others that they were attracted to one another and soon started a relationship. During their free time the couple would often go on nights out together with Brian's sister-in-law, Isabel. However, when the police spoke to Brian about Paul Spickett's disappearance, they learned something strange. Isabel wasn't his sister in law, she was his wife. 37 year old Brian and 31 year old Isabel Adams had been married since 1965, and they had four daughters. Brian had a track record of being unfaithful to his school teacher wife. In time she came to accept that her husband cheated and eventually she helped conceal his family from Brian's lover Kathy Spickett. Brian's relationship with Kathy was far from his first affair. He had even fathered another daughter with someone else a few years earlier but Isabel forgave him. Brian told Kathy Spickett that he had two daughters and his wife had died in a car accident, leaving him to raise the girls alone. He introduced Isabel as his sister-in-law at first and said that the other children were hers and she too had been widowed in a tragic accident. All three of them would go to the local pub to drink and play dance together. Then Brian went home with Kathy. Isabel began to see less and less of her husband and resorted to waiting at bus stops to hand him letters. When their daughters wanted to see him, they would stand on the road along his bus route and wave as he drove past. Eventually, Cathy came across something suspicious. A letter Isabel had written addressed to her darling, Brian. In the letter, Isabel called Brian a wonderful husband and father, which understandably set alarm bells ringing in Cathy's head. Her own marriage had broken down, but she did not want to be the other woman, nor have a relationship with a married man and break up a family. Cathy Spickett began her own investigation and consulted the electoral register in Thornaby. She saw that Isabel and Brian had the same last name and lived together on Londonderry Road in Stockton-on-Tees. Kathy confronted Brian with what she had uncovered and threatened to end the relationship. Brian told her that she was mistaken. Isabel was his sister-in-law who had been married to his brother Michael Adams. Brian convinced his wife to play along and forged a marriage certificate that showed that Isabel had married Michael Adams, who had passed away. When Cathy asked Isabel about the letter Cathy had found, Isabel told her that it was just her way of thanking Brian for taking her and her daughters in after she was widowed. Cathy was duped again, and the affair continued. Brian even enlisted the help of his daughters, two of whom called him uncle in Kathy's presence. and The other two called Isabel auntie when they were in the company of their father's unwitting partner. After learning about the deception and the lengths Brian and Isabel Adams had gone to, they were brought in for questioning. During an interview with Detective Inspector Robert Redford... Isabel Adams said she loved her husband and just wanted him to come home. Isabel told the detective that everything was all right until Kathy came into their lives. I decided that something had to be done about it. The only thing I can think about was getting Paul out of the way and then Brian might start taking the kids out. Isabel Adams admitted that she had met Paul Spickett, the child of her husband's lover, close to the school on February 11th. She told him that Brian, who Paul knew as his mother's partner, had been in an accident. Isabel explained to young Paul that his mother Kathy was at Brian's bedside as he was injured and Isabel had been asked to collect him. Paul trusted Isabel enough not to question what she was saying, so he willingly followed her home to Londonderry Road. Isabel's daughters were downstairs when she arrived with Paul, and Isabel quickly told him that she needed his help to make up a bed for him to sleep on. After they went into the bedroom, Isabel pulled out a hammer and began bludgeoning the little boy in the head repeatedly. Isabel told the detective, It's no good saying I'm sorry because that doesn't help anybody no matter how sorry I feel. Once I'd started I wanted to stop, but I couldn't because he would have run downstairs where the kids were. Even when I went for him I was just wondering if I could just kidnap him. I got in such a state I couldn't just take any more. After hitting Paul with the hammer at least seven times, Isabel put a plastic carrier bag over his head. She covered any holes in the bag with tape so the ten-year-old would suffocate. Isabel then placed Paul's body in a cupboard and went on with her day, never revealing to her daughters what had happened. Isabel denied telling Brian what she had done, but claimed that she had worn his clothes when she dumped Paul's body the following night. Brian had been staying at Cathy's as he helped her search for Paul, but when he came back home to his wife the next day, Isabel was waiting for him. Brian told Isabel that Paul was missing, and she replied, He's upstairs dead. I did it for you, because of you. Brian Adams initially denied any involvement, but he eventually admitted to helping Isabel conceal the crime. He told detectives, My wife wanted me to be happy and would do anything for me. I know my carrying on the way I did drove her to do this. On February 18, 1974, Isabel and Brian Adams were brought to Teesside Magistrates Court and charged with murder. Brian was remanded into custody at Durham Prison, while Isabel was sent to Lone Newton Remand Centre. In- What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate free, cruelty free, safe for families, and EcoVadis is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with Scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. While at the Roman Centre in Low Newton, Isabel Adams was examined by Dr. Legasic. A report was compiled on May 20th. The doctor wrote In my opinion, at the time of the murder, she was in an abnormal state of mind. Dr. Legasic went on to address the impact of Isabel's mental health and how it related to her culpability and criminal responsibility. Quote In severe depression and anxiety, states of altered consciousness and depersonalization, as described above, are well known. And it was in such an abnormal state of mind that this patient killed Paul Spickett. Therefore, in my opinion, Mrs. Adams was suffering from mental illness within the meaning of the Mental Health Act of 1959 when this crime was carried out. As a consequence of this, I think she should be regarded as having substantially diminished responsibility in regard to the crime of murder. Dr. Legasic didn't believe that Isabel Adams needed psychiatric treatment as her husband Brian had said that if they were reunited, they would move to another part of the country and live happily ever afterwards. The doctor went on to conclude that Brian Adams had serious defects in his personality. Dr. Bhattacharya, Dr. Legasic's colleague at Lone Newton Remand Centre, also assessed Isabel's mental state. In his report, he wrote, In my opinion, she has a weakness in her personality, being unable to deal with emotional conflict. That is, when faced with extreme emotional situations, mental stress and anguish, her reactions are of profound depression and anxiety, which is bottled up without an egress. In this instance, I consider that her mental responsibility for her acts was substantially impaired. Dr. Bhattacharya did not believe Isabel had a mental illness that would warrant action under the Mental Health Act when he wrote, She had suffered from depression of psychotic intensity for an approximate duration of eight weeks before committing the murder. In my opinion, at the material time of the alleged offence, she was suffering from such abnormality of mind due partly to inherent emotional incompetence and partly due to mental illness, namely depression, as to substantially impair her mental responsibility for her acts. By the time the trial was due to begin, Isabel Adams pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Her husband, Brian, entered a guilty plea of assisting an offender. A hearing was held at Teesside Crown Court on Friday, July 5th, 1974, before Mr Justice Mays. Paul Spickett's mother, Kathy, was in hospital receiving psychiatric treatment and the boy's father Alan had not been seen by his neighbours in Newcastle since the news broke of Paul's murder. The court heard about the unusual love triangle, in which Isabel Adams pretended to be her husband's sister-in-law so he could continue to have a relationship with the victim's mother. lining the case for the Crown, Derek Clarkson QC said, it is a bizarre case. This man spent his time between the two women. Mrs. Adams clearly knew of her husband's association and to some extent condoned it. The prosecutor told the judge that Isabel went along with Brian's deceptions, even after Kathy discovered a letter Isabel had given him after waiting at a bus stop. The husband and wife had convinced Kathy that Isabel was just Brian's widowed sister-in-law, and Isabel wrote Cathy a letter telling her, You and Brian seem an ideal couple. Isabel's barrister, Gilbert Gray QC, argued that his client was in a state of abject misery and heartbreak when she wrote that letter. He was telling his wife that unless she did what he told her and endured these impossible demands, she was out of the picture. It was in the hope that he would return to her that she endured all the deception and finally killed this innocent boy. The defence argued that it was Isabel Adams' love for her adulterous husband that led her to beat ten-year-old Paul Spicket with a hammer and then using sellotape secure a plastic bag over his head. In letters to Brian, Isabel had written... I have given you every ounce of love in my body. What more must I do to get you to leave Cathy and come home to me? Gilbert Gray QC lambasted Brian Adams, telling the court, This pathetic woman was blindly in love with a faceless Don Juan husband who involved her in the most abject form of deceit. Mrs Adams was under this tremendous influence and was besotted. Love is supposed to be blind and in her case it was. Adams was selfish and egocentric. It never crossed his tiny mind that it would drive his wife to this calamity. The prosecutor had explained that Brian Adams returned to his marital home where Isabel told him that Paul Spickett's body was upstairs in a bedroom cupboard. Allegedly she had killed young Paul for him and because of him. Highlighting that Brian played along after the 10-year-old was reported missing, Prosecutor Derek Clarkson QC added, he still went out looking for Paul with other members of the Spickett family knowing what had happened to him. Isabel Adams was remanded into custody until more evidence about her mental state could be presented. But Judge Mr Justice Mays addressed Brian Adams, who had promised to look after Isabel and move her away from the area if she was released. The judge said, "'You behaved abominably to your wife. I cannot accept your protestations about future loyalty.' There is nothing that can be said in your favour. You appear to have a way with women. You goaded your wife into a mental state ending in killing this boy. Removing the body was not to protect your wife. Your concern was for Kathy. This might be the end of your affair with her. Brian Adams was sentenced to 12 months in prison for assisting an offender. Isabel Adams was brought back to Teesside Crown Court on Monday, July 8th, 1974. The court heard that there was evidence of premeditation in that Isabel had stuck sellotape over the holes in the carrier bag before putting it over Paul Spickett's head. That said, testimony was presented by medical experts indicating that she had a mental illness during the period leading up to the murder. Dr. Fidian, who was the medical officer at HMP Durham where Isabel was briefly held, was asked if she had recovered. Yes, she is no longer depressed, the doctor replied. A further question was put to Dr. Fidian: Did Isabel pose a serious risk to the public? He responded, Well, can I say I don't think she ever was a risk to her own children, a hazard to her own children. As I said, the fact is her mental state was probably brought about by her circumstances, and those circumstances could, if they occurred again, I think her reaction could well be the same. Dr. Legasic, who had examined Isabel Adams while she was at Low Newton Remand Center, was asked if he believed Isabel posed any danger to the public. He voiced the opinion that she did not present a serious risk. Under cross-examination, Dr. Legasic was pressed on whether there were any circumstances in which Isabel could pose a risk. One must contemplate it if her husband returns to her and she continues to associate with him. It is my view that he has behaved appallingly and he strikes me as the sort of individual who would behave appallingly again, not perhaps in the immediate future, but in the distant future. Dr. Legasic had suggested a period of three years of supervision, which he believed posed the best possible chance of restoring Isabel's mind. Another expert witness, consultant psychiatrist Dr. Humphrey Richardson, testified that Isabel Adams was suffering from a psychiatric condition. If she was given supervision as an outpatient, he did not think there was a risk of repeated violence. Dr. Richardson was questioned if a period of three years would be adequate to cure the defendant, and the doctor replied, No, not cure. I think it is adequate to get it under such a degree of control that she would be much more stable. Sufficiently so for us not to be concerned about her as a social risk. When asked by the judge what Isabel Adams' prognosis would be, Dr. Richardson told the court, ''Well, first I have to say that it does, to some extent, depend on how much insight she can develop in relation to the existing marriage. I don't want to imply that she has merely been, that all her actions have been, at the whim of her husband.'' and she herself has expressed twice to me specifically the fact that anything that has been said does not stop her feeling responsible. But if they get together again, you see, what I have in mind is that if he lets her down further, we again have someone more disturbed who will need more help. If things develop differently, I would say that the prognosis is really not bad at all. The doctor did however highlight Isabel's current thoughts about her marriage when he added, she says that she still has a feeling for her husband and wishes to be back with him. Isabel's counsel asked for leniency in light of the doctor's reports. Regardless, Mr Justice Mays did not feel as though a light sentence would be appropriate considering the crime. After labelling Brian Adams a Lothario who was totally selfish, the judge told Isabel, It is one of the most distressing cases I have had to deal with. Your husband carried on a blatant association with the mother of this boy. You plan to do this other woman harm in the hope that your husband would give her up. One's sympathies, in some respects go out to you. You acted like a robot clearly detached from reality. You were virtually a doormat on which your husband wiped his feet. I don't consider that you warrant punishment, but the public must be protected. Although he was reluctant to do so, the judge ordered Isabel Adams to serve an indeterminate life sentence for Paul Spickett's murder. So where are we now? Brian Adams was released from prison in early 1975. Along with his daughters, he left his home on Londonderry Road and bought a new property where the family could easily travel to visit Isabel in prison. On April 11th of that year, an appeal hearing was held at the Royal Courts of Justice where Isabel's barrister, Mr G. Coles, argued against the life sentence. Coles referred to the doctor's reports and said that the sentence imposed was too long, considering Isabel had had a mental illness at the time she killed Paul Spickett. The barrister claimed that Mr Justice Mays had exaggerated the level of risk Isabel posed to the public, and that the judge had underestimated the impact of the help she could receive if she had been placed on conditional probation under outpatient treatment. Coles argued Isabel's condition was described by doctors as being normal, and she did not have the same mental state as she did at the time of the murder. The court heard that Brian Adams strongly urged the appeal judges to consider that in light of all of the medical evidence, it would be best for his relationship with Isabel to continue alongside the treatment she would receive on probation. Isabel's barrister pointed out the disparity between the sentence Brian Adams received and the sentence imposed on Isabel, stating, Perhaps it should be clear to all that morally, he is the most to blame. Coles urged the judges to reconsider the sentence. If they would not contemplate probation, then consider a determinate sentence of a set amount of years. In their decision, the three appeal judges, Lord Justice Orr, Mr. Justice Caulfield and Mr. Justice Talbot, concluded that the trial judge had tried the case with the greatest possible care and listened to the evidence of doctors. They felt the only course of action Mr. Justice Mays could take was a life sentence. Quote, He gave her that sentence not because she required punishment, She does not. This court entirely agreed with Mr. Coles that punishment does not enter into this. What this court has to consider is whether the learned judge came to the right conclusion having regard to the circumstances of the offence, a mental state at the time, a mental state now and the future. Whether or not from the public point of view it is better that the sentence should stay or whether another course of allowing her to have mental treatment under probation should be substituted. Concluding the appeal, Mr Justice Talbot added, Having considered this with the greatest possible care because it is perhaps one of the most difficult and anxious cases that this court has had to consider, the court has come to the conclusion on the basis of all the medical evidence that this is not the stage for it to adopt the course that Mr. Coles has urged upon it, but that the sentence should remain as laid down by the learned judge. It is, in effect, an indeterminate sentence which this court hopes and knows will be kept constantly under review, and at the correct time, as determined by those who will be responsible for her, no doubt she will be returned to her family." Isabel Adams was eventually released and lived her winter years in Cumbria. She passed away in 2021. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, they walk among us